How can you experience a changed heart and a changed standing before God where God says, that person's righteous? How do you get that? When you are willing to turn from your own self-righteousness and you're willing to humble yourself before God, you cry out to God for mercy. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What kind of righteousness characterizes you? Is it internal and from the heart? Is it radical and complete? Hi there, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series with part 10 of What Your View of Scripture Says About You. If you're trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone on your behalf, Scripture teaches that you have experienced a changed heart through a process called regeneration, and you've experienced a changed status called justification, where God declares you to be right with Him on the basis of faith in Christ alone. It is God the Father who has given you real righteousness through that of God the Son. You belong to His spiritual kingdom today, and someday you'll belong to His literal physical kingdom. What are the daily practical outworkings of that reality? Do you live for God's glory or your own? Keep all that in mind as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. In Galatians 3, what does Paul say is the point of the Old Testament? It was to show them their sin and their utter lack of personal righteousness and to drive them to their Messiah as their only hope of real righteousness. They didn't get that at all. They missed it altogether. They thought they simply needed to keep God's law in order to achieve a right standing before Him. If they could just keep it pretty well, then they would be righteous enough that God would accept them. They could be good enough for God. Listen, do you know everybody's born with that theology? My kids were born with that theology. Your kids were born with that theology, and so were you. You can be good enough for God. Just work harder. That's what they thought. They thought they could get there by their own efforts. Let me show you this. Look at Luke 16. Luke 16, verse 13, Jesus has just commented, Uh, on the fact that you can't have, a slave can't have two lords, two masters. And therefore, you've got to decide, are you going to be a slave to God, or are you going to be a slave to wealth? Now the Pharisees, verse 14, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And notice what he says to them in verse 15. You are those who justify yourselves. In other words, you declare yourselves to be right, acceptable to God. But it's strictly human. It's in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. You justify in your own hearts yourself. You justify yourself with others as if you're righteous. But God knows what you're really like. They tried to build self-righteousness. You see this even more over in Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus tells a parable, a story. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They believed they were good enough for God. 
and they viewed others with contempt. They saw themselves as good, and therefore they measured others against them and saw they came short, and so they viewed others with contempt. And Jesus goes on to tell the story. We're going to come back to that, so I won't look at it now. Turn over to Romans chapter 10. Because here Paul identifies it very clearly. This was the mindset of first century Judaism. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for my brothers is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. They're zealous, but not in accordance with knowledge. In other words, they don't get it. What didn't they get? Verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness, that is, not knowing how high God's standard is, what he sees as righteousness, and not understanding what Paul's talked about in the first chapters of Romans, and that is the gift of righteousness that God gives to the believing sinner. They didn't get any of that. So what did they do? Verse 3, they sought to establish their own righteousness by their own efforts, and therefore they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Listen, you cannot get into Jesus' kingdom by your own righteousness. Not going to be good enough for God. You will never, ever be good enough for God. What does Romans 3.10 say? There is none righteous, what? No, not one. Not you, not me. Not one of us will ever stand before God and be good enough to meet His standard. You only can get into Jesus' kingdom if you have someone else's righteousness that meets that standard, and that's Jesus' righteousness. What does Paul say in Philippians 3? You remember he was talking about his own righteousness before conversion and how, how qualified he was externally? But in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, he says, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from my keeping of the law, but the righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which God gives as a gift on the basis of faith. That's your only hope. That's my only hope. And they didn't get it. The law didn't serve its purpose in their case. It didn't show them their utter lack of righteousness and their need of the Messiah. They just thought they could be good enough. So clearly their righteousness was flawed in that it was self-righteousness. But that's not primarily what Jesus means in Matthew 5. In context, Jesus is chiefly referring in Matthew 5 to a second way their righteousness was flawed. Not only was it self-righteousness, it was imperfect righteousness. They were very righteous, but their obedience to the Scripture was imperfect, and it was imperfect in several ways. Let me point those out to you. First of all, their obedience to Scripture was external and not internal. They defined obedience as external conformity rather than internal obedience from the heart. Jesus said this in several places. In Mark chapter 7, verse 6, He said, This people, they give me lip service, but what? Their heart is far from me. They they externally conform, they, they talk a good talk, but it doesn't come along with their heart. But I want you to turn to Matthew 23, because here's where we really get insight into this imperfect righteousness. Matthew 23, 
Seven times in this chapter, Jesus calls the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites. The Greek word for hypocrite, you're probably aware, was used to describe someone in the Greek theater. In Greek theater, to make sure you could see the person at a distance and what role they were playing, they wore masks, sometimes large masks, that that would let you see who that character was from the distance that the theater was away from the stage. And so, simply, the word hypocrite means someone who puts on a mask to play a particular role. That's all it means, an actor. It came to be used of anyone who pretended to be something that they aren't. Jesus says the scribes and Pharisees were playing a part outwardly, but it wasn't who they really were. Look down at verse 25. Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you play actors, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You clean up the outside, the external. You look great, but not true on the inside. Who would want to drink out of a cup that's been carefully and meticulously cleaned on the outside, but looks like some of the cups in my college dorm room when I was growing, you know, when I was back in that stage of my life, it's got stuff growing there for three or four weeks. Who wants to drink out of that? Verse 26, you blind Pharisee, First clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Start with the inside because that's the most important and then the outside will follow. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs to keep people from stepping on the tombs of your forefathers. In the the first century, they would whitewash them. They would put a, a white paint over them Sometimes they were very carefully decorated and and all adorned in white. Ironically, guess what color the scribes and Pharisees most often wore? White robes. Jesus says, you know, it looks great. But just like that grave that looks really pretty from the outside, you are inwardly full of rot and decay. Verse 28, so you too outwardly appear righteous to men but inwardly you were full of hypocrisy. In other words, you're just play acting and, watch this, lawlessness. Your heart is still completely lawless. You're not obeying God in your heart. It's all on the outside. This isn't how God responds, is it? You remember what Samuel the prophet said? God does not see as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. God cares about your heart. He doesn't care what you look like on the outside, first and foremost, until the heart is right. Then the outside will be right. So what's going on in your heart? That's why, by the way, back in chapter 5, Verse 6, the true citizens of the kingdom are described as those who inwardly, in their heart, hunger and thirst after true righteousness. They're not just interested in looking right. They're interested in being right. So the Pharisees and the scribes 
obedience was imperfect in that way, but it was also imperfect in that it was self-centered and not for God's glory. Not only was it external, but it was self-centered. They pursued some measure of obedience to God's Word, but it was always about them, what they could get out of it. Look at Matthew 23, verse 5. This is a stinging, biting indictment from our Lord. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. And then he goes on with a list of them. Think about that. This isn't me saying this. This is Jesus saying these guys did what they did to be respected, to be honored, to be elevated, to be thought well of. It wasn't about God at all. It was about the people around them. That's not true obedience. It's not true righteousness. In fact, you remember those who were citizens of the kingdom, they demonstrate good works for what end? So that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. Not these guys. It was about their glory. Listen, if the reason you obey God is for utterly selfish motives, if it's because in some circles you want to be healthy or wealthy, or you want to have a good reputation in the community, or you want to be looked up to and respected, and that's primarily what it's about, then it's not real righteousness. A third way their righteousness was imperfect is their obedience to the Scripture was incomplete and not radical. Their obedience to the Scripture was incomplete and not radical. They did obey some of the Scripture. But often they obeyed the easier, less important commands and failed to obey the most important ones. Look at verse 3 of Matthew 23. When they teach the Bible, do what they tell you, but don't do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. Look over at chapter 23, verse 23. Jesus says, you, you tithe your garden herbs, but you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Yeah, they obeyed, but it wasn't radical obedience. It was convenient obedience. In fact, other times they replaced the true meaning of the Scripture by their tradition. You remember Jesus in Matthew 15 gets on to them for their, the way they had this deal about something that could have benefited their parents, they said, oh no, I've given this to God. And therefore, they undermined the whole intention of the Scripture. By the way, as we go through Matthew 5, Jesus is going to give six examples of how through their twisted, distorted interpretation of Scripture, they have changed what God intended into something else entirely. They missed the point. So their obedience was convenient incomplete, and never radical. What God wants from us is radical obedience. Look at chapter 5, verse 48. Therefore, be perfect as your Father is perfect. It doesn't mean true perfection is achievable in this life, but that's the standard. And we should never be comfortable with anything less. Radical obedience. Now go back to Matthew chapter 5. Let's wrap this together in a package here. What is the point? Jesus is saying that the disciples 
who were listening to him would not enter into his kingdom. Those who claimed to be connected to him would not enter into his kingdom unless their righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees, whose righteousness was self-righteous and it was incomplete. Their obedience was external and not internal. Their obedience was self-centered and not for God's glory. Their obedience was incomplete and not radical. They failed to live up to the standards of Scripture. But what does their incomplete obedience, their imperfect righteousness, have to do with not entering into Jesus' kingdom? Was Jesus saying that we enter His kingdom because of our works? Clearly not. I mean, His first... His first attack against their righteousness was that it was self-righteousness. So what's his point? Listen carefully. This is absolutely crucial. To get into Jesus' kingdom, your righteousness must be greater than the scribes and Pharisees in this sense. You must have true righteousness. Not self-righteousness, but true righteousness. So how do you get true righteousness? Where do you get a righteousness that is internal, radical, and live for God's glory. You only get it one place, and that's from God himself. In fact, according to Christ, true righteousness begins with two acts of God. This is the only way you can be truly righteous. It begins with regeneration. That's a word that simply means God gives you a new heart. You remember Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John 3? Unless you are, what? Born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You've got to get a new heart. You've got to start all over. There's got to be a radical change in who you are that's like being born a second time. And only God can do that. Why is that birth so important? Because in that birth that theologians call regeneration you get a new desire for, delight in, and ability to obey the Word of God. You remember the prophets in the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36? He will write His laws upon your heart. He'll give you both a delight in and a desire to obey, power to obey. Before we can be truly righteous, God must first change our hearts. But there's a second act of God required. Not only regeneration, but also justification a changed status before God. Not only do we need a changed heart, we need a changed status of right with God. Now go back to Luke, and let's finish here. Luke chapter 18. Let me finish this parable Jesus began. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves they were righteous, and they viewed others with contempt. Here's what he said to the self-righteous. Let me tell you a story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Righteous Jews went twice to the temple every day to pray if they lived in the Jerusalem area. The morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. One of those times, these two men went up, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. A Pharisee and the lowest of the low, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You see, this guy is consumed with his own self-righteousness. He thinks he's good enough for God. 
Jesus says, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Literally, the Greek text says, God, be propitiated. God, let your wrath be satisfied toward me, the sinner. He wouldn't even look up. Just beating his chest, saying, God, I'm, I am the sinner, and I need you to turn your wrath away from me. Be merciful. Show me grace. Show me mercy. Now, notice what Jesus says. Verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, declared in a moment's time to have a right standing before God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, you need to be really righteous. You need a changed heart. That's regeneration. And you need a changed status before God, a changed standing. That's justification. How do you get both of those? How can you experience a changed heart and a changed standing before God where God says, that person's righteous? How do you get that? Look back in verse 13. Here's how you get it. When you are willing to turn from your own self-righteousness and you're willing to humble yourself before God and like this tax collector, you cry out to God for mercy. We're right back with the first beatitude, aren't we? Blessed are the beggars in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is how you get real Radical righteousness. You acknowledge your utter lack of righteousness and you cry out to God for mercy. And God changes your heart and He changes your status before Him. And then He makes it possible for you to live in obedience to Him. He writes His laws on your heart. He gives you a living spiritual heart that loves Him and longs to obey Him and has the power to do so. Let me ask you, What kind of righteousness characterizes you? Is it internal and from the heart? Is it radical and complete? Is it for God's glory? If so, then you have experienced that changed heart called regeneration, and you have experienced a changed status called justification where God declares you to be right with Him. And He has given you real righteousness. You belong to His spiritual kingdom today, and someday you will belong to His literal physical kingdom? Or is your righteousness merely external conformity? Partial? Incomplete? You can take the Bible or leave it. I don't really care that much. I'll do what I want to do. I'll live the way I want to live. And and I'm driven by my self-interest. I want what I want out of life. I don't really care what God wants. If that's your righteousness, then it's no better than the scribes and Pharisees. You are not in Jesus' spiritual kingdom today, and unless there's a radical change, you will not be in His kingdom in the future. And the only way that can change is for you to be like this tax collector, to find yourself humble before God, crying out for His mercy to change who you have become. That's where it begins. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 10 of his series, What Your View of Scripture Says About You. And that concludes our current series. Tom will begin a new one next time, and we hope you'll join us then.
Well, Tom, how about sharing a closing thought with us? You know, friend, it's my prayer that as we've walked through this passage, this teaching of our Lord, that you have gained a growing confidence in the Scripture, that you have come to believe about the Scripture what Jesus believed about the Scripture. And I hope you've also understood that the one who will be great in Jesus' kingdom is the one who emphasizes everything in the Scripture and teaches others to do the same, who seeks to obey it, who loves the Word of God, embraces it, obeys it, and teaches others to do the same. I hope that you have a new and fresh confidence in the Scripture and a new and fresh commitment to obey it, because in so doing, you are honoring our Lord Jesus Christ, who affirmed it and who gave it to us. Thanks, Tom. Church leadership can often seem like hazardous duty. Leaders can have both mountaintop experiences and seasons of discouragement. How can you, as a leader of Christ's church, faithfully respond to the different perspectives on leadership and the trials and triumphs of ministry? In Tom Pennington's book, Faithful Stewards, Tom identifies three key perspectives on church leadership that can help you maintain spiritual stability in ministry. Purchase your copy of Faithful Stewards today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. 